What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of THP Strength. On today's episode, we will be interviewing Matt McKinnis Watson. Matt owns a business called Plus Plyometrics, where he provides supplemental plyometrics, and he has been actually writing my plyometric progression for, I want to say, the last close to a year now, I believe. I asked him to coach me. I believe that every everyone should have a coach. Even a coach should have a coach, so you take the bias out of the situation. Anyways, love Matt, love his thoughts. Talked a little bit about his plyo progression in the plyometric episode, I think the part two. And real quick, even before we get into that, just want to say this week's podcast is brought to you by Legion Supplements. One of the biggest questions we get asked is how can I improve recovery? One of the only ways to do this is to give your body more of what it already needs. Increasing bioavailability of these micronutrients can help you. In other words, it lets your body do what it's already trying to do during recovery, but better. I say this every time. We approach them, we believe they have the best product and we wanna pair ourselves with the best product. Everything that they have is evidence-based, research-backed in terms of what's actually in it and they have a review board to validate that as well as how much is in it. So if you're looking for supplements and you wanna recover better, that is my number one recommendation. Foam rolling, icing, compression, all that stuff is tertiary in the way of recovery if you're not giving your body what it needs to allow it to do what it does best, which is repair itself after you go through an intense training session. All that said, thanks for coming on, Matt, and uh, give us a little update about your life. What's going on? Are you, how is Plus Plows going? We haven't talked in a while, <laughs> other than texting. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me back on. Uh, it's obviously a new podcast, which I'm really enjoying myself listening to regularly, so doing a great job. So keep giving us amazing content online because I'm particularly enjoying it. So with me, I'm, we're now, what are we, five, six months into launching Plus Plyos and we're gradually building a, a steady kind of athlete base. And I'm really enjoying seeing guys get involved and just start to learn a lot more about the, the plyometrics that, that I preach and that I teach. A lot of the stuff that you do is, is similar to what, to what we program. Yeah, I, for me, it's always about getting people to just try it out because a lot of guys, as soon as they start to do the, the ply programs, they start to just really enjoy it. And it becomes like a, it's quite an addictive training method. I think people just love to jump and move. Being in a gym can get boring sometimes where you're just going up and down. But when you get sensations from jumping movements and plyometrics and speed stuff, I think it starts to get a little bit interesting. And it, I bring a lot of variation to the table to, to keep you interested as well. And I, I do that specifically for you as well, John. Yeah. Just <laughs> we'll get into that. There's questions there. about that too coming up. Yeah, exactly. I know yesterday Austin did a plus plyo session and I helped coach them through it. And I did a couple of, obviously not max intensity, but to help like demonstrate. And it was really fun just watching it and then doing some of the less intense stuff. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's really dope. Yeah. That's good. It's good to hear. I think one of the biggest things I've realized over the last year, and this is more and more kind of being made clear to me, is that if you want to jump higher off one foot, plyos are such an important, maybe the most important thing that you can include in your programming. I've time and time again recently, especially, noticed improvements in my jumping over the last eight months to a year because of the plyometric volume that I'm doing right now. And as a one foot jumper, myself and then someone who loves high jump and loves working with high jumpers. I, and then also having speed jumped, I think the plyometrics play an integral role in improving the dynamic strength of that takeoff leg in a very specific way, almost in a way that you basically can't replicate in the weight room and at, to a specific degree. And 
Thomas has always hit home on that point and we'll hopefully have him on in a later ladder podcast. But also you've said that as well. And I think it's very true. It's just very difficult sometimes to figure out how to integrate them in a way that allows you to do takeoffs and jumping as well as have a integrated weight room that's also progressed too. So yeah, I've been loving them and I think they're mega important for one foot jumping. If you guys are looking for some supplemental plyos, plus plyos is what I recommend. It's a great platform, web-based, and you can see all the sessions there. So not even, I I, I get no kickback from this. (laughs) (laughs) I know there's going to be a lot of people that immediately heard what you just said, John, and I'm hoping you and Matt can broach the subject real quick at the outgo of this. It's so for two foot jumpers, would this make sense? Or is this mainly for one foot jump? It would help both, especially the deep tier plyos, I think would help both. I think that the one foot jumping, I would actually argue it's more beneficial for, I would feel comfortable saying that and confident saying that it would be a better stimulus for one foot jumpers just because the ground contact times are shorter. The knee joint angles that you see in a lot of the really intense plyos, you're other, they're going to be specific for one foot jumping and in two foot jumping, there's so many other ways to manipulate the force time or not the length tension relationship. And then also take advantage of the force time curve. So I just think for one foot jumping, it tends to be a more potent and specific stimulus, I guess is maybe the the better way of saying it. And because there's so much variety, you actually don't run into the issue of training monotony. And because the volumes are appropriate, which is, I think most times two to three days a week, if you're doing mass progressions that you don't really run into too many issues. And he's obviously not going to throw a single leg hurdle hops at you <laughs> like on the ball of the foot week one. Obviously, if you're a very elite jumper, there has to be a pretty specific plan. And Matt's done a really good job of helping me. I wouldn't say I'm a mega elite jumper, but I, I jump high off one foot. He's helped me integrate it and things like that for my one foot jumping. But that would be my answer for that. It's going to help both, but I think it's going to be better for one foot jumpers. There needs to be more of that volume consistently. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am starting to... I think I'm going on a a really big learning journey when it comes to learning about two foot jumping and how I can manipulate what I do with with my pliers to to support more. I would say the more elite end of two foot jumpers, especially, I think that's the biggest trick for me because I think that plyometrics can really support the the lower grade of athlete, especially, and they're always going to bring in a lot of skills, a lot of just overload qualities, just building a general base of good landing management. It, Someone teaches, like intent. Isaiah, it teaches intent so well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Someone like Isaiah has done so many two foot takeoffs as well. So it's, it's when you've got kids that are almost trying to play catch up, if they're trying to learn how to dunk off two feet at the age of 17, 18, using a plyo stimulus is, is something a bit different as well. That's not necessarily going to be killing them doing loads of maximal two foot jumps to a hoop yeah i i feel like i'm learning and i i want to get to a stage where i can feel confident in how i would look at elite two foot jumpers yeah um and i'm I'm learning a lot from you guys especially as i move through that development in my mind and and what i write in research and stuff so yeah i'm sure it's probably beneficial for volleyball players too because they tend to have shorter they have less knee bend and they don't jump quite as high because they don't have to, they don't have the time to do that in terms of yeah. their approaches. So I'm sure that plyos would be really beneficial for them and understanding two foot jumping. You could definitely 
start to help that demographic, I would think. Yeah. So that was actually, I had a question a few weeks ago to just message you, John. Um, <laughs> and there as well, but do you think that there's like a, a route towards having more dunkers being a lot taller and stiffer? Do you think that there's a plateau to having more of a softer, more knee bend developed athlete? Like when I look at you, Isaiah, I'm like, where does your front squat go? Does it get to 250 kilos or I wish. what is the progression? Like, where does that go? Is it actually we need to make like taller takeoffs in basketball? You've got a few dunkers that are like that, that are a bit more stiffer and use more of an elastic takeoff. I think if your goal is to max out two foot jumping, then if your goal is to jump 60 inches, hypothetically, let's say we wanted Isaiah to jump 60 inches. He has to have stiffer tendons than he currently has, and he has to be stronger than he currently is. There's no question about that because any neuromuscularly, there's a lot of benefits too from just doing, seeking out those two goals. Neuromuscularly, there's tons of benefits. And if he has stiffer tendons, he's going to be able to absorb and redistribute more energy through the takeoff in his patella and in his Achilles. But he has to be strong enough at the muscular level to, those tendons have to be stiff enough and strong enough and healthy enough to handle the amount of stretch that they're going to take. We have to change the properties of the tendon. And I went into this in detail during the first plyometric part one podcast and Isaiah listened to it and was like, that was so much. It wasn't even related. It is related. And here's why, <laughs> because it's, it's material science. We need that material to be stiffer. And not only that, we need it to not tear. We need him to be able to push further along that curve, that stress strain curve and change that stress strain curve such that he gets more energy for every little inch that he stretches that tendon. And further, we need it to not tear. So we need the ultimate failure point, which is the point at which it tears or even the yield point to specifically yield point to move forward because past the yield point, you're moving into plasticity and we need that tendon to stay elastic. So it's not getting damaged over time. That material is not damaging over time. So we need to move, we need to move that yield point over. And we also need to change hooks law, which is the slope, right? We need a higher slope so that for every inch that we pull it, we get more force or every centimeter or whatever metric of distance you want to use. We're getting more, more energy out of it when it returns and, and deforms, right? Because it's like basic physics, right? Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So if we stretch it this amount, we're going to get that much on the return. And the same thing is true of Isaiah's tendon. So that's one major thing that we need. And then further, we need to increase his max strength as much as possible so that he is able to pull on that tendon. Because if he's not strong enough and can't generate force fast enough to tug on that tendon, then it's not going to matter. He, we can stiffen his tendon all we want, but if he's not able to pull on it to generate that energy in the tendon, that connective tissue, it's not gonna, we're not going to get the, the jumps that we want. His ground contact times are decreasing as he's jumped higher and higher. Is that correct, Isaiah? Yeah. So he's running faster into the jump, loading the tendon with more energy via his muscles being strong enough to hold and anchor everything in place. So his bones have to be strong enough. We don't want that to right now. His tendon at the proximal end is pulling away from the bone so hard. His muscles pulling at the proximal end so hard on his quad in like the vastus lateralis that it's causing issues. He's actually causing tendon issues in the proximal portion, which is, that's unheard of. I've never heard of that in my entire life. So we've actually gotten his tendon at the distal part so strong and so elastic and so stiff that he's having issues up the chain where that tendon is supposed to be 
super freaking dense. You know what I mean? It's way stronger and bound to that bone in a very intense way. It's, it's pretty uncommon to see the issues occur up the chain like that. I've never seen it with elite two foot jumpers or one foot jumpers really as a tendon issue in the upper quad that I've never seen that for the vasolateralis. But that, that all said to answer your question, that's if I don't care about anything other than him jumping as high as he possibly can. <laughs> if, if I'm looking at a basketball player, that's very different because a basketball player doesn't have the time or the benefit of a run-up that Isaiah does. Now, does increasing him to 60 inches improve everything else along the way to that, every other strategy? Yes, he's going to be able to jump 48 inches faster and easier if he can jump 60 inches. He's going to be able to jump 30 inches faster and easier if he can jump 60 inches because the muscle's stronger, his RFD is higher, and the tendons differ. And maybe not like the only downside would be, okay, now this force transducer, the tendon, isn't good at storing and releasing energy anymore at slow speeds, at slow velocities, because I need the muscle to produce more force. But you could circumvent that by saying, yeah, but now it's a stiff force transducer. So he can just, the muscle does all the work. <laughs> like That's kind of what, with these football guys that have crazy standing verticals, they just, their RFD is so high. They don't need to really take advantage of, it's either twofold. It's either that they have soft tendons and they can use it because they're so strong and they can get the benefit out of it in a two foot jump and they're maybe slightly softer tendons and their muscles are strong or it's that their tendons are so stiff and their muscles are just that powerful where they don't even need to, you know what I mean? They don't even need the tendons energy to <laughs> get the benefit out of the movement. It's both obviously. And, and the strategy that you use is different depending on what the, what you're trying to achieve. If it's a standing jump, the internal physiology is going to be very different than a running approach jump, but how you get there is somewhat similar. You have to, with Isaiah, I have to know certain things. And if I have a basketball player, I have to look at certain demands and, and look at the time intervals. How much time do you have to do these things? And then that gets into anticipation and reaction time. And that also gets into how much time that gives you to pre-activate a muscle. That is, in my opinion, almost more important <laughs> if in the task out of any of the tasks. And that kind of bleeds into one of the questions that I had for you, Matt, which was, and I wrote this one down the last couple of weeks, I started improving my one foot speed jumping and not just a little bit. Like I probably increased three inches in three weeks and I haven't seen that type of improvement in really ever <laughs> the entirety of me doing speed jumping off my right leg, which I've been doing for two and a half years. And I started to rehearse my approach because I was on this football field and it was taking me so much time to get my approach ready. And I was trying to lower into the takeoff. And if my steps were off, there was no chance I was going to be able to like do what I was trying to do. So I started counting in my head and walking around and making sure I was starting every approach on the same foot forward and making sure that I knew when the curve was going to start and making sure that I knew when I started to need, when I needed to start lowering. So I started counting in my head, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, one, two, three, and doing that over and over again, just walking around. I'd be in the weight room between sets, walking into it, left foot hits one, two, three, four, five, one, two, one, two, three. And just pantomiming that and visualizing it and feeling the rhythm and feeling kind of the positions as I walk through it, practicing lowering the last three steps and going into a takeoff position with the shoulder back and my foot out in front and flicking my penultimate step foot back and just rehearsing that over and over again. I started to pattern it and then I get on the field and I go to jump. First time I'm like, ah, this isn't really right. Put my shoe out there, get the steps on one, two, three, four, five, one, two, one, two, three. 
And as soon as I felt that lean, as soon as I crossed over on that right foot, on that sixth contact, so it was that left, right, left, I just, my whole body was like throwing, it was like throwing something down a chute. It was just like, and took off. <laughs> Did you ever see the things in the bank? Like the, the things that take the, that they send up and back. It was like that. It was just like, you put it in there and it was like, <laughs> just got taken down the chute and boom, like a rocket just took off those last five steps. And particularly it just speeds up. And you hear that oftentimes as a coach, I tell people that I'm like, oh, you're not accelerating through the takeoff. You're not, your rhythm is really bad and all these different things. And I think it's just a matter of, we say this all the time, like chasing sensations. I'm coming in and I'm just like, I feel that lean. I feel that pressure. And then I'm like, oh, this means it's time to go. My body is already prepared to take off five steps out. The first five steps, I'm not at a point yet where my body's like, where my brain is wired like that, where I step one, I'm ready to take off. It's like, I get in that curve and I feel that pressure. And that's all of the feedback to my brain to say, this is the motor pattern you're picking. So I guess that was my experience with it. That was one of the big things that I noticed helped me a ton. And I continue to do that. And I know as I get better and Hunter alluded to this the other day, he's like just unconscious knowing unconscious confidence. That's where I'm getting now. It's now I'm getting to the point. I don't even have to count. I just know I feel that sensation <laughs> and internally my brain just takes off. What do you think that it's, do you think that's what's happening? A that I'm anticipating better and that there's more preactivation. And if that is the case, do you think it's maybe the most important factor in the actual takeoff and getting coordinated? Yeah. So the, I think also without you even realizing that you are the work that you've been doing over the past well, year that we've been working together, I think is now coming to fruition yeah, a little yeah. bit as well. I definitely think that there's a big part of that. Like obviously my RSI has been high. My RSI keeps going up. My muscular force keeps going up but I wasn't able to connect the dots. You know what I mean? If you just look at the things I was good at, you look at my stiffness hop go up. My RSI was a legit three, seven or something like that, I think, or close to four maybe. And double leg, really strict touchdown toe off using the my jump Two app, 240 frames per second. You're collecting 240 data points per second, which is really intense. That's a lot of data points. And uh, you're seeing my RSI slowly climb up over time as I get that motor pattern down as I get the R my RFD up as I get slightly stiffer tendons and uh, coming in obviously to the year, my left foot was way better. And it was apparent. Yeah. The dynamic work is working. <laughs> like your RFD is going up. You're getting more elastic. Yeah. You're getting more powerful. You're wired more obviously. And we know biometrics do that. There's no doubt about that. And then as I'm going into this takeoff, I was like, why am I early on? It was like, I couldn't connect the dots. <laughs> it's like, I can't put two and two together. Why can I not get my right foot to, to be explosive and powerful? I know it is. I can, yesterday I put this on my video. I was like an eighth squat or whatever, quarter eighth squat, what I'd call it an eighth squat, single leg. I can lift up. I can almost jump from that position, that eighth squat position with a single leg with 500 pounds on my back. Like it's like not, and I think a lot of high jumpers, I think a lot of people could do that. They maybe just wouldn't try and maybe their spines would blow up, but <laughs> for me, it's like, fine. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Know that the, you put me on a force plate and you have me test my RFD and you have me test my peak forces. They're crazy high, like insanely high, very high, especially relative to my body weight. But I wasn't able to, I couldn't connect the dots. I like couldn't do it. So I guess, yeah. What do you think that all being said, I'll turn it back on you. You can, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> I do that sometimes. Uh, cool, cool. Um, I think, I think that like you're alluding to the, your ability to anticipate landings and 
now start to create rhythms within your body that enable you to pre-activate better. So you're activating your muscles before you're about to hit the ground. And that's, we spoke about it before and, and you were talking about some research and whether I'd gone into a research about it. And I have read articles where they've said that the best athletes or elite athletes and best jumpers in the world are pre-activating muscles up to 20% of the total time of a ground contact time prior to it. So let's say that you're able to, you're able to put your foot down and take off in, let's say two tenths of a second. Um, then 20% 20 of the percent of time behind that is you're almost at full activation of the muscle before you put your foot down. Um, so are you saying that it would be 40 milliseconds prior to touchdown? Yeah. I'm already at almost at hundred percent activation. That's what some of the research studies found. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, was, there was some work from the, one of the Finnish researchers. Uh, sorry if you're Finnish and I pronounced this wrong, but it, I think his name is Vitasalu. So he's part of the, the Comey crew in oh, really? Carolina. And, yeah, oh, some of the yeah, research I looked at <laughs> right before this podcast. These guys, these guys pump out the, some of the best stuff when it comes to plyometrics and speed and tendon work and stuff like that. So yeah, there was findings that, that found that we are almost 100% activated when it comes to EMG readings um, and looking at surface EMG stuff. And they were looking at like lower extremities. I think they looked at quad muscles, but I'm not sure what ones. So I'm not going to try and say exactly which ones, yeah. but the lower extremities were the highest activated muscles prior to that. When I get a lot of athletes that come to me and they're like, I can't time this. I don't like to hop, like my body just doesn't, it, it shies away from it or I land really toey or it's just poorly timed. A lot of the time, the starting point is your unload phase, is your anticipation to hit the ground. Mm -hmm. And now my, my preaching of plyometrics um, and what I coach uh, and the reason why I coach so many variations of movement is to build in this network within your brain to be like any kind of landing, my body is ready to go and I'm already hitting the ground before I've hit the ground sort of thing. Yeah. I have that anticipation within my body to do that. So as well as the research backing that up, that's been kind of part of my coaching, part of my mentorship from when I was coached as an athlete. So I think that has been a big learning part for yourself, especially with your right leg takeoff mm. is you've been, you've been a, a power or strength jumper for all of your life off of your other leg. And I think the pre-activation methods are slightly different. And I think they're slightly different for two foot jumps and everything. Yeah. Like someone like Isaiah would feel it differently with how he things like how he gathers his arms and the pre-activation that he might get in shoulder girdle, things like that. And how that links to the contralateral hip mm -hmm. so there's slightly different pre-activation methods so it was about remapping that for you and you're not a right foot takeoff guy as well you know i, so I am now there's, there's, there's so many things and i always when i try to explain neuromuscular patterns and skills i do the, i do a drawing on, on a piece of paper and i say the best athletes in the world have a really dark scribble where they've done millions of the same landings and they've been perfect takeoffs every time. Someone that is really a beginner to this sort of new form of takeoff or changing your takeoff leg, you have all these weird directions of scribbles that have, this neural mapping is just not well lined up. It's exactly the same way that you described, I think, a couple of weeks ago with, with looking at the, 
good muscular fibers and how they all sting together thing i think that's the same mm-hmm. with with strong neural connections yeah so, no it's exact i think it's exactly the same thing is looking at the emg is going to tell you that you can see hey look there's a ton of activation in the soleus or the gastroc or the vastus lateralis before the muscle before your leg ever touches the ground before that agonist is ever recruited like it's not even producing active force in the other direction or anything else but we can see that it is the muscle is already pulling on the tendon and you'll see in the research that you were just with that research group you were just talking about they're talking about tendon lengthening prior to touchdown and pre-activation and tendon lengthening and pre-activation and tendon lengthening and it's weird because you hear that and you're like how's that how is the tendon lengthening prior to touchdown like <laughs> That doesn't make any sense. You're not angulating in that direction whatsoever. The muscle should be lengthening because it's an eccentric contraction and like flips the switch on everything you learn in school. Because in school you learn, oh, the down phase is eccentric. The agonist is on the whole time. The down phase of that agonist is eccentric. So it's lengthening on the way down and it's isometric at the bottom. And then it contracts concentrically on the way up. But then you learn in sprinting and jumping that when you move really fast, or you're doing a takeoff or a landing that actually on the way down, your muscles pulling up <laughs> your muscles shortening actually. And because it's anchored to a tendon, if the tendon's down here and it's anchored down here, that it's stretching that tendon out as the muscle shortens, as you're touching the as you're coming down. Like that makes no sense. <laughs> like how is the tendon lengthening prior to touchdown? Why is the muscle functioning concentrically? None of this makes any sense to me and it again it flips the switch on like everything you kind of know but that's why i think pre-activation is so freaking important like being able to know what's going to happen before it happens here's a question john do you what if you were if we were to look at it if we were to look at the 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 bits we've just been going over and, and saying that we're building new patterns of neural maps and all this sort of stuff i wonder if uh a beginner or someone that's trying something different off their other leg. I wonder if the the pull on the tendon is as good or as great. And we're actually, we are actually getting more of a typical eccentric lengthening. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm it positive that would happen. More <laughs> yeah. I think what you just described this crap, I think it's crappy if you have an eccentric contraction. I think that means you suck. <laughs> like if you have a real, if you have, everyone's oh, you got to focus on eccentric muscle contractions. They're so important from a neural perspective. Yeah. But in terms of motor patterning and producing a lot of force in a bouncy activity, hell no. If you have a landing and takeoff versus a bounce, you suck. <laughs> like, I think that's just like, you, you have to re- deflect, deflect off the ground. If you're not deflecting off the ground, that means that you're doing an eccentric muscle contraction. And that's slow. It's slow to go from eccentric to isometric to concentric versus concentric. That's it. <laughs> like you're unfolding the leg, boom, concentric. Stretch out that Achilles tendon, load it up so it's a freaking rocket when you go to push off the ground. And I think, like you said, doing all the, that was a big question I had actually was, why do I do so much variety of all these different takeoffs. I'll go laterally, I'll go side to side, I'll do medium submaximal to more. And it really, I think simply is that you are getting better at landing and taking off and you're getting better at anticipating the ground. And the better you are at anticipating the ground, the more pre-activation you have. And if you can do that in a bunch of different settings, then it becomes subconscious and it becomes automatic. And then when you go to jump off your right leg, you'll hear people say, it just happened. I just had the best day of my life in high jump. I don't even know how it just happened. I just had the best jump session of my life. It just happened. I don't know. I didn't even think, 
yeah, no shit you didn't think. Your brain just, <laughs> it's been thinking for the last thousand to 2000 to 10,000 reps that you got of that activity. That's why repetition is so important in anything you do, just to pattern it and learn and repeat. So 100%, I definitely think that crap jumpers, me early on, no matter how good your RFD is, no matter how good you are at certain plyos or whatever else, or the 10 plyos you maybe did your whole life, you might not just automatically wire a super explosive right leg. Like it just might not happen because you don't have that skill. You haven't developed that broad general ability to anticipate and fire that muscle. Yeah. This is my big point when people come to me and say, oh, but some of these movements aren't plyometric or they like to see that we were talking about the post I just put on Instagram of this guy jumping off a 210 meter box. Like why isn't it all depth jumps or what is the, what's the point in it not all being shock based where everything is about getting the, the greatest loads and, and getting our body used to high loading and stuff like that. And I, I think that it's because the plyometrics that I preach or whether you want to call them leg dynamics or just locomotion in general, if you teach, extremely kind of violent movements like some of the ones i do or all the way down to something that's very light or something that's a little bit softer it brings so many more skills with it it brings so many more neural patterns that like you say just then it it gives you the ability to be like you know what i i don't have to think anymore it, it's i'm so well mapped i'm so i'm so much more safer when it comes to landing i, I don't have to worry about acl issues or i don't have to you know, when I'm cutting in a game, it's not going to be something that my brain even has to think about or, and you're able to do things that are much more competitive rate rather than it being, there's a conscious level to it. And we want to make subconscious athletes that are able to just go out and perform. Mm -hmm. So that's the biggest, I think the biggest annoyance that I always get is people ask me, well, why haven't you got enough depth jumps in your program? It's like, well, there's more to this. There's levels to it. There's levels so, to this shit. <laughs> Exactly. No, I definitely agree. That was one of the biggest frustrations I had was being patient as a right foot speed jumper. I'm like, why can I just do this fastball? Why can't I just fucking go out and jump two meters? I was frustrated. Yeah, because my brain doesn't, it's not like that right now. My muscles don't preactivate when they need to. And they don't, I don't have any level of anticipation because I've never done this thing you're asking me to do. So I have to rep it out. I have to get globally better at knowing my foot's about to hit the ground. I'm not thinking about this. It's just happening. <laughs> it does it. One of the biggest scenarios I noticed this where best illustrates this examples was doing the hops on the right foot. It was so bad. The left foot, it took me two sessions and I was just like, got it. Left, 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 left. Yeah. So easy. If you put me on the force plates though, my left foot actually doesn't produce as much force. My peak force is actually lower. My RFD is about the same, but I go to the right foot and can't do it. Flat every time, slow, I can't turn on the muscle, I can't, it's just not happening. And the faster I go, the flatter and the more my foot just freaking caves, the more shin splints I have. Like, shin splints are a great example. When I first started speed jumping, my right foot lower leg would just explode. It felt like every, it felt like everything just shut off and all of a sudden the ground was there and my muscles were like, shit <laughs> like and all the pressure build up i've never had shin splints in my whole life it's like well, why does that happen because your muscles are not turning on prior to you touching down and that just takes a lot of reps a lot of reps and it takes reps 
over weeks and months and yeah, it's just really a lot of time. So as you get those, that volume in, as you get those reps in, and I think there's ways you can help yourself along the way, specifically with high jump. And I'm still learning that, but eventually I don't have any lower leg pain anymore because I'm getting better at recruiting those muscles earlier and earlier. And that means that um, my lower leg is stable <clears throat> when I touch down, there's no mushing out. The preactivation is really high. So before I ever strike the ground, my legs already this stable, elastic surface, not this mushy, soft, compressible spring that is just going to mush out as soon as I touch the ground and then push up again, which early on, that's what I did. The stiffness has come a long way in the last, I don't know, two years, probably. <laughs> That was, I wrote down a few notes before and we discussed some of the questions that we talk about and I, and I was like, well, what, what does anticipation bring? And I was like, I put down four points. Straight away, it gives you a faster stiffening effect. Like you're able to, people ask me, how, how do I stiffen my joints? How do I get a stiffer takeoff? Number one, point one is if you pre-anticipate the ground, then you're going to be able to stiffen that, that joint at a faster rate because it's already contract. It's already stiff before you hit the um, ground. <laughs> Right? Yeah. Exactly. And you can't do it actively. So, That's the other thing. People think you do it actively. It's yeah. not an active thing. You can't pull your toes up and have it happen. I hate that. No. People are like, oh, just dorsiflex. Oh, just flex the muscles. Like not, it doesn't really work like that. Like sometimes I'll tell people yeah. hit the ground before it hits you and double leg plows. That's easy. Bounding or alternate leg bounding. That's easy. You get into hopping, you get into takeoffs, like single leg takeoffs. It's not, it's not uh, cyclic. It's acyclic. No. Jumping is acyclic. Every stride is different. It is an entire different motor sequence from the first step to the takeoff where hopping is cyclic. Bounding is pretty much cyclic. Leaps are cyclic. And as you start getting into these things, these complex plyos where it's okay, I want one high hop, one low hop, a stride, then a high stride, and then low hop, high hop, stride, takeoff, land on two feet, takeoff. Like <laughs> you start adding in that level of complexity. How in the fuck are you supposed to anticipate the ground whatsoever? Like, you can't, it's like near impossible. And then you're like, okay, now I want you to run as fast as you can go one high, one flat, one high, one flat. And then I want you to jump over this and then you zigzag with your right foot and then do a backflip and land on your right foot and then go ahead and into a single leg sprint hop. Then I'm like, well, I don't know what that is. You can't possibly pre-contract or think or do anything like that. It is all so variable and it has to be subconscious, but that's the beauty of the variation that you build in anyways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, and, I, and a lot of people, a lot of people will say that where they're like, just hit the ground harder. And it, it gets to a stage where you get to more of a stamping effect and you're trying to concentrically move. You're trying to activate muscles concentrically, I would say, in and in a, it's like a push. I'm trying to push the ground all the time. We've actually got to accept the ground before we can push off. I, I think, think what happens is there's no anticipation. Actually, what happens is yeah. you're just like, if you strike the ground, you're turning on the wrong agonist to do that. Right. So let's say you're trying to do a single leg takeoff, right. And you're like stomping to the, through the ground, your hip is contracting concentrically causing the whole lever to move downwards. And then I think like your knee ends up being in a bunch of flexion and you don't actually get that pre-contraction happening with the leg fully extended, the lever being in a really strong position, you having a lot of axial loading through the long axis of the body. You don't have that happen. If you stomp the ground immediately, like that's not going to happen. And if you try to put the leg straight and you try to whip the foot down, now your hamstring is contracting and your hip is contracting and your knee is shut off. So it's not going to pre-anticipate the takeoff. Like it is like this passive unfolding where you just delicately float it out 
and then you let your leg react to the ground. That was something I had to learn was there's nothing consciously that you're going to change by trying to stomp or strike or pull or push. It's just not going to happen. Those it's too slow early on. Yes. You know what I mean? When I had to learn these basic motor patterns, yes. But then once I acquired those, it was like, okay, trying to do this anymore is pointless. Like I would have been better off just trying to relax and focus on the free leg and letting my foot react to the ground, which is eventually what I started to do. And then it became passive. Yeah. Anyways, I agree with that. I didn't understand what you meant prior, like a year ago. And now I really get it. <laughs> now I'm like, Oh, that's what he meant by that. Yeah. The, the four points were faster stiffening effects, which then subsequently produces or gives you the ability to potentially take on a higher eccentric force. So your ability to accept load mm -hmm. in the eccentric phase is going to be a lot higher because straight away you have a greater stiffening effect. Yeah. During yielding. Then in turn, then in turn gives you a faster ground contact time because you're not sat in an isometric phase for so long because you're still trying to stiffen when you hit the ground. Yeah. Which in turn gives you a greater use um, of energy transfer, basically. So you've got fast stiffening, ability to, to take higher load, faster ground contact time, and a greater transfer of energy. Yeah. Which is like those four points. I'm like, well, shit, I want all of those. Like, what does it take for me to get that? And coming full circle of what we said is that variety of movement is so important mm. and doing one thing the same all the time is not going to be the way to, to create pre-anticipatory methods as you wish them to be. I um, think, yeah, I think you said this, but like coaching fluidity and coaching, like just general where you should land on your foot, you're probably going to get 90% of what you want out of that plyo. <laughs> just coaching. Hey, I want you to stay relaxed, stay fluid push, relax, push, relax, push, relax. That's where push, push, relax, or whatever it is when teaching the basic fundamentals of that movement. And then once people start to get, okay, this is the basic movement litmus or literacy I need. This is the basic movement literacy I need to have to do this. Okay. Now, how do I coordinate this to get a fluid subconscious pushing in and out of these positions? And it's, you shut your brain off, you relax and you just land, push, land, push, land, push. And like over time you start to just develop that, that knowing and uh, you get better at it. And uh, I think like decreasing effort levels can actually really help with that. You have oftentimes put in my progressions like submaximal, and I value that really highly those plyos because one, they warm me up a lot. They get my tendons really compliant, which is great Two, They teach me to just relax and let my body react versus when you try too hard, you actually you don't, you lose that anticipation and you lose that pretension because, or preactivation because you can't, how are you supposed to subconsciously preactivate a muscle? If you're thinking about what you're going to do next, it's just not going to happen. You have to shut your brain off. It's quicker than fingers though. Yeah. I think there are certain cues, like one word cues sometimes that you can keep in your head as a reminder to do certain things. But if you ask Isaiah, like, Isaiah, on your highest jumps, what are you thinking about? Push hard off my penultimate, run fast. <laughs> That's basically it. Yeah. It's not, hey, can you pre-contract your hamstring for me? <laughs> like, once you're off that penultimate step, it's done. The rest takes yeah. care of and, itself. And I've asked you guys that so many times. I'm like, what do you think about? And you're like, nothing. I'm like, what's it feel like? Boing. <laughs> like, yeah. It feels like a I'm, rocket ship. Isaiah, what is the... John, John, sorry, John posted the, the video of you doing that insanely high East Bay. And I think sometimes, I wonder if some of your best jumps 
but let's say a forced output come from something like an East Bay where you're actually thinking about something completely different. Like you're thinking about what the ball's going to do or your position in the air or something like that. Is it, do you have a central focus for every single dunk or is it, again, is it something that you've done so many times you just roll up and think, I'm just going to push off my right penultimate and that's it. I'm going to kill this dunk. So, that's what he thinks. <laughs> yeah. Specifically that East Bay, I remember super vividly because that day, that's probably my highest jumping day ever. And it was more of a fun day. I went to the gym to play basketball. I wasn't thinking about like any dunks or anything like that. And it was very like a lighthearted mood would be the best way to describe it. Like, when, I, when I went for that East Bay, when I went for that East Bay, it was just like, I'm gonna throw this ball up as high as I can and just try to catch that shit high as fucking punch it. <laughs> that's, like that, that's all I thought about. I didn't think of like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna center this ball like five feet to the right of my center of mass and then I'm gonna lob it exactly. It was no, it was, I'm gonna lob this shit as high as I can and dunk it as hard as I can. And I've done this dunk so many times, I don't have to think about it. And that's how almost every jump, even my Vertec test. I don't know if you're John, I think I touched. So my previous highest touch ever was 12 feet. And after that, I was stuck at 11, 11 and a half. I, I think that day I touched 11, 11, like not trying. Like I literally just went up and didn't think about anything. Just super, like super easy and touched it. So my best jumps ever are definitely like, it just happens. I, I've lost. It's what Hunter said, where you unconsciously uh, do it. I guess I forgot Hunter, how, how, did you how word the it? saying went. It's unconsciously competent. Competent, not competent. Unconsciously competent. competent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that describes it perfectly. I'm not really thinking about it super well. The, the times where I do think about it is more of the sessions where it's bad and then I start getting in my head because I'm like, let's say I'm having a bad jumping day and I'm like getting rim stuffed on 360 East Bay and th then that's when I'm thinking, okay, push hard off my penultimate, drive the ball up. That's when I really have to think about it. But I've been there, man. I've been there in high jump days and I'm thinking about like, how to run and stuff like that. And you're like, just leave the facility. Like it, you're done. <laughs> yeah. You're not jumping out today, man. That's when you know it's bad. <laughs> that's when you know it's bad when you're like, going to try. You're when you, yeah, you feel <laughs> sluggish on your run. I feel like I can't walk properly. That's, that's when you know it's bad. Yeah. I've definitely experienced that. I, I really do. People I think it comes back to this anticipation response. And we, there are so many questions here, Matt. There are literally are so many questions and I'm going to ask Hunter, what timestamp are we at right I, now? I have a couple of questions about yeah. Hunter, what timestamp are we at? We are right at an hour. What? Or uh, fifty minutes. My bad. Holy God! All right, we're gonna have to do another one, Matt. So we'll have to schedule you to come back and keep these questions up. But Isaiah, what? Pick one question. <laughs> oh God! Pick one question, you slob. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask two two easy ones, and, and then a hard time, one. I'll do the <laughs> hard one. So where do you land? on your foot on a plyo versus a max approach one foot jump and is there a difference let's say uh, for a dunk just a straight up yeah straight up dunk and then i think the let's say we're using like a, a bound or something like that i think yeah the, the difference is actually is quite different especially like if you were to use a dunk a dunk is slightly different to a high jump takeoff but it's relatively similar let's say so with more like locomotive plyometrics, I, there tends to be a lot more horizontal effort to it and propelling your body a lot more flatter. So you will tend to get more of a rolling contact. I, will always, I always preach a full foot landing and then to 
to just roll straight off your toe. Some people will use like a, a heel to toe movement. I don't like to teach mm -hmm. it too much because I think it teaches a little bit of braking forces. So yeah. I like to try and get my my heel needs to be underneath my butt if it's going to hit if it's going to touch the ground. Like it needs to be directly underneath my hip. Now because the, the transfer of energy when you're taking off of one leg and you're trying to go directly vertical, it's going to be different because you have your foot out in front of you. So, so it's like hard to avoid your heel when you're trying yeah, to... Yeah, it's hard to avoid your heel, especially when you're when you're taking off of one leg in comparison to doing, one, let's say, one leg pliers. But again, I still don't like to teach the heel to go down first because it, yeah. it again, preaches a form of breaking force rather than a transfer of force. Yeah, so it, it should just happen naturally you shouldn't be actively trying to land on your heel it's yeah. more like you're trying to get more of a midfoot contact but because of the nature of the jump it just naturally, you'll it get naturally heel contact hit, yeah i, I okay. think the best jumpers in the world tend to if you look at them they tend to land really like it times so perfectly if you yeah. look at really good one foot especially high jumpers and you'll see a, a much much more of a novice jumper that might yeah. roll off of his heel what you often what I've noticed, sorry, yeah, and what I've noticed with like more novice jumpers is, and I think this is where the shin problems come in and the stomping, and this actually leads into my second question. But it's it's almost like their foot, it's like a two point contact, it's like heel and then like a slap, like it's like that instead of a smooth like roll. So that leads into my second question. This one's easier. You mentioned earlier that it should be more about accepting the ground and then pushing off. Are there any cues that you have and you give to people to avoid stomping? Going, going back to what John was mentioning with using submaximal work, I think that I take away cues a lot to just say, we, you just need to get this volume of work in. You need to do a lot of light, bouncy work where your body is figuring stuff out on its own and yeah. you're able to sensationally feel landings a lot more. And then and you just turn up the intensity. Yeah, and you just try to up the intensity and, and develop your own ability to create intent when it comes to more intense plyometrics. Unfortunately, I know that's not for listeners, that's not necessarily always what they want to hear. Like, that, that there isn't necessarily going to be a cue, but I think that's the reality of it. The reality but, is you got to do a shit ton of jumps. Yeah, uh, good technique. <laughs> the exact same thing is people that stomp tend to not anticipate the ground. They don't have the ability to do that. So, people that that stomp often get shin splints probably because number one, they land heel first and then they get that slapping recall of the whole of the rest of their foot, which probably yeah. means that the lower extremities and all up the chain behind your calf in the front of your shin, all of those muscles are, they're going from zero to a hundred in the snap of a finger. And you're like, oh damn, okay. I can't use my heel bone to break the whole of this force of this run up. Yeah. Then, it's like when you're driving a, a manual car and you like just let off the clutch and like the car does that shake thing. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, that's what it reminds me of. You're not ready, you're not ready for it, are you? The, the car isn't ready for it. It just goes boom, boom and jolts. Yeah. So you that's need... a really good analogy. Wow. Well done, Isaiah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not... Exactly. So you, you need to build in that anticipation to be able to, to do that. So people that come to me with shin splints, I can almost tell that they either land really poorly or when they want to land in a full foot, more of a safe way or more effective way, it's because they can't pre-anticipate well. So yes. you can do all the shin exercises in the world, but shit, it's not going to get the job done when it comes to yeah. putting your foot in the ground 
and receiving five or six times your own body mass in point. Because there's nothing that you can really do to prepare yourself for the forces you're going to face when you're stomping. That's, I always will say this. It is all about pre is about anticipating and pre-activation. You, you can do all the strength work you want. You can get that single leg squat up to 600 pounds. Go for it. I can get your eighth squat up to 500 plus. But if you can't do the takeoff and you can't turn those muscles on at the right time beforehand, you're never going to be able to use it. You just can't. You're just not going to. And uh, that's my two cents. You're <laughs> a cannon out of a canoe. I like that analogy a lot as well. Wow, guys. Whoa, guys. Chill out with the analogies. I think we're <laughs> approaching over an hour here. And we got to cut off at some point. Matt, we're definitely going to have you back on. We always say this. And we are true to our word. Just in a timely fashion, can't make that guarantee. No. <laughs> We're getting way better though. We are getting way better. We're definitely getting way better with making sure that we are doing them every day and realizing the value that our members and people that listen to them and coaches get out of them. So we're trying to stay as consistent as possible. We have a couple other guests lined up, one of which was you. We have Thomas coming on, which I'm super excited about. And Hunter, you said there was one more. Do you remember who it was, Hunter? Off the top of your head? Chris Bearcat. Who was it? Chris Bearcat. I've got to familiarize myself with all these guests. <laughs> but yeah, Matt, thanks for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. I will do the closing remarks now. If you guys are listening, make sure that you like, comment, subscribe. I always say this, but I am super diligent about getting back to any questions in the comments section. I believe Matt has YouTube, so he can answer your questions there as well. And if you're listening to it on the streaming service of Spotify or Apple, make sure that you give us five stars like it, comment. It helps the algorithm. It helps us get pushed out to as many viewers as possible. And then lastly, if you are listening to it, feel free to screenshot it, post it on your story and tag us. We will reshare it or add it so that we can push this content out to as many people as possible. Thanks for listening guys. And we will catch you on next, the next episode. <laughs> Peace, Peace out.